the wandering journal at Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town. The podcast that takes you on an audio journey highlighting a different slice of Australian life each episode. Buckle up to meet a great array of ordinary, everyday, incredible Australians. This podcast is brought to you by DM Podcasts, part of Diamantina Media, with more than 25 million downloads for a range of shows such as The Batuta Advocate and Chat 10 Looks 3. While in Adelaide for the city's world-renowned Fringe Festival, it was wonderful to see the city buzzing again in the aftermath of the COVID-19 devastation on the region's all-important arts sector. All the little theatres were full of innovative creativity and people happily walking through alleyways and streets of town underneath glittering lights as they made their way from one show to the next. One of these little productions I stumbled upon absolutely blew me away. Happy Go Wrong by Andy Snelling. This emotional roller coaster of a one woman show takes you from the heights of elation to the depths of despair, much in the same way as Lyme disease has upended this performer's life. She had to build her life again from scratch and is still unravelling on stage and off the ramifications this tick-borne disease has on her existence and identity. and performer of Happy Go Wrong. Wonderful. Thanks so much for speaking to us at Streets of Your Town today, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. Here we are at Henley Beach in Adelaide. Bit of a change from your normal Melbourne digs. Yeah, definitely. I I was just saying before how much I appreciate stable weather. Yes. It sounds very kind of rudimentary, but I actually am loving it. Yeah, you're enjoying that South Australian desert kind of climate. Yes, it's either rainy or really dry generally, so you, you hit it on a good time. I absolutely love it. Yeah, and here at Henley Beach, it's just been divine staying here during the fringe to just get away from the madness of fringe and have ocean. It's been such a great combination for me with the really, like, intense physicality of my show here's our cup of tea thank you so much that's me almonds for you thank you and i'm the soy thank you andy we are here at henley square one of the jewels of adelaide i think we could safely say definitely a diamond yeah (laughs) people don't really appreciate adelaide interstate i don't think but it's pretty special at this time of year at fringe isn't it what's it like from a performance perspective like yourself I would, yeah, totally agree with you. We have a seagull in the background yep. squ- squawking in agreement there. Add to the atmos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it is magic. It is a magic time of year in Adelaide. It really is. Um, there's not a lot of festivals, especially in Australia, where the festival overtakes a whole city. 
we don't really get that in Australia. Yep. You know, it doesn't really happen with Melbourne Fringe or, you know, Sydney Fringe or other fringes or even other festivals in the way that it happens here with Adelaide Fringe Festival. Like, the whole town actually knows about it and you can strike up conversations with random people in shops and that and they'll actually genuinely want to know about your show. People ask me for a flyer here in Adelaide. That does they really support. The they actually want want to fly from yeah. me. I don't even have to like shove it in their face. <laughs> so it's that kind of town, and it's yeah, it's a gorgeous atmosphere. And we were, I was lucky enough to see your incredible show, Happy Go Wrong, a couple of nights ago. How was that season for you to do that in Adelaide? Because it was just an incredible bubble to be in that you created on that stage. Thank you. Yeah, it's been probably one of the best seasons that I've had in a show of my life, actually, if I really think about it. It sort of ticked every box and dream that you would want to achieve as a performer. You know, every show sold out. There were standing ovations, five-star reviews. You know, I got some awards. Just just mind-blowing. But even all of that stuff aside, I think what you've just said is what I appreciate the most as well, is that sense of, yeah, a bubble with... The, with the audience and that I really felt that every single show um, in this two week season that I've done here at the Bakehouse Theatre it was yeah very palpable for me it's the sort of show where I feel that every second of the show it's not a show where I feel like oh this is where I just do this bit now and then the next bit happens it's very much I feel very deep in every second and every breath of the show with the audience and there are a lot of moments in the show where I'm very responsive of what is happening in the audience you know whether it's someone's phone went off one night at an incredible moment when um, the guardian angel character that I play called Lucky says early on in the show being alive is dangerous because something unexpected could happen at any moment (laughs) and someone's phone went off in that exact moment and I was like this is gold and so it's really that sort of show where I love to play with that kind of stuff that interaction yeah even just hearing a tiny a tiny something from the audience becomes a moment that can only happen in that moment with that audience on that night and so I, I very much yeah, it is a show that brings me to life. Voilà, je m'appelle Lucky. You are a well-trained audience. Sounds like you've been a performer for a, a while. This is not your first show, obviously. No, no. As I say, this is not my first Radelaide rodeo, and and not my first show. That's right. <laughs> I've actually been on stage, you could technically say, since before I was born. Oh, beautiful. Because my my mum did a bit of dancing, just like amateur fun dancing stuff on the side. And when she was pregnant, apparently, yeah, she was pregnant with me and she was on stage. So you could argue... That's where it's It goes way back when, but... <laughs> Yeah, I grew up dancing and gymnastics and, and all of that stuff. So pretty much since the age of four, I, 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 I have an understanding of that sense of being on a stage. Um, but in terms of making my own shows, that's something that I've been doing since 2015 with a big break in between. But, yeah, so 
It's something I've, yeah, worked at for a long time, that's right. So without giving any spoilers away, very conscious of that, but do you want to talk about this latest happy-go-wrong? It starts off so joyously, really, and so yes. optimistically, and <laughs> lots of fun and amazing music, but you really do take us on a, quite a roller coaster ride from there, hey? I certainly do, and that's all very planned and structured. For me, it, it was important that this show not only bring my audience joy and find capacity for perhaps unexpected um, comedy in from dark places, but also that for me, that there was capacity for joy in a show that is otherwise about a very heavy experience of my life. So yes, I wanted to kick off the show with a beautiful my beautiful bumbling philosophizing <laughs> french roller skating angel so that i could then really take the show wherever i wanted because i think if you set something up like that where the audience feels safe and warm and like they're in on it you know they're sort of in on the game i think then you could really take them anywhere and my audiences were amazing they always came with me on the journey it is yeah an emotional roller coaster is pretty apt to describe what happens in the show <laughs> I mean, yeah. and I suppose it also reflects, to a degree, like you say, the the emotional rollercoaster that you've been through these last three years, and that you've managed to put on stage in that really innovative format, essentially. Thank you. Yeah, it feels like a microcosm that represents the macro of what has happened in my life over the last five or so years, as I've gone through a yeah life changing chronic illness journey with Lyme disease. I seem to surprise even myself that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really, I am really able to go there every single performance, even to the places that may seem a bit dangerous emotionally. But because I think I've, and it, and it was important to me to create something with elements of the abstract that gives me a distancing from myself. Yes. And this is why, as well, the character of Lucky, the French angel, who sort of acts as a narrator, Greek chorus, wink, wink with the audience throughout, is a really vital role that allowed me to have that distance, to look back on, you know, the experience I've gone through and to be able to comment on it and make sense of it, I suppose, that allowed for that distancing mm. because... Um, my health is my number one importance and that includes mm. in my life now and that includes my mental health so I take that very seriously so that gave me that permission but then also it just opened up a whole lot of world of play for me as well because I was like I'm just going to throw in every genre of performance style that I love doing into this show and which is why you get almost what some people des- describe as performance art elements oh, interacting yeah mm. interacting with brown paper sculptures as I do but also my love of physical theatre and dance, comedy, clowning, and I sing as well. It's sort of the show where somehow I've managed to throw in a whole lot of genres together that I think if I'd logically sat back at the beginning of the development process and decided I'm going to try and put in this, this, this and this, you wouldn't think it would work. But because I work in a very improvised, organically unfolding way in terms of my creation process... Those were just the things that came alive within me in the studio and so they found their way into the show. So, yeah, having a sense of play for me within the show as the performer and, you know, the sick person 
is very important because it makes me want to do the show and to tell the story as well. It sounds like it took you quite a while to even figure out that this was Lyme disease that, that, yes. that fitted your symptoms. That's right, that's right, which is extremely common for actually a lot of people with a lot of what they call mystery chronic illnesses, but certainly in the Lyme community, uh, people can take years, if not honestly decades, I've heard of as well, to get a diagnosis. Now, for me, my tick bite was in 2014, and um, resulting from that bacterial infection that came from the tick bite was Lyme disease, but that got diagnosed for me in 2017, which is considered a quick diagnosis for Lyme, but it's still three years. And you were very, very, very ill from yes. even just the insight we got from you on stage and oh, writhing on the floor and the agony. You just felt like you were there with you at that time, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, mm. I, I, I really have gone to the brink and come mm. back, which is, of course, in the show... There's a real sense of literally clawing my way back out of a deep, dark pit. And even now, I still have phases where I'm very unwell still, so it's still an ongoing thing that I navigate. I have to set aside, on average, two to four hours every day to undergo medical treatments just to be functional. That's still my reality. It's very normalised for me, so it can sound shocking to other people, but it's become just a part of my acceptance, I suppose. And that's not to say there's a resignation, because I am working towards full recovery and I believe that's possible for me, but it's that I know that the more I just accept this is part of my life, the, the happier I am, basically. <laughs> there was some the happy um, in the wrong, which is the point of the show. <laughs> that's right. And back to the beautiful title. Um, there, there were some lines in it that really stuck with me, particularly at the, I think. But you look so well. Ah, yes, yes. So I have a very fun <laughs> section of my show towards the end. Again, an important, in, from a structural point of view, important that that very grotesque. And confronting section of the show for the audience comes towards the end. I need to have built up their trust to be able to throw that upon my audience. But yes, I have this wonderfully grotesque version of myself, really, who gets to express, um, I suppose, a lot of the challenge I faced and frustrations around navigating my new identity as someone living with a, a very invisible illness and the things that people say have said to me because everything I say in that section is verbatim it is true they are things people have said to me and it's not that I judge that because I completely understand that point of view because before my illness I had no idea that people can live very extreme lives but look perfectly well but yes that section again it it allows me to play in a very like spits drooling out of the mouth kind of <laughs> grotesque way and toy with yeah a lot of the things I have heard along the way and a lot of the medical gaslighting I've received as well again it's this is why art is just so powerful and helpful I feel because it's the pl- that's the place for it it challenges people's assumptions on so many levels yeah and if I were to just sit at home and fester in perhaps some of those the anger that I have had a, at various times over things people have said for me that there's no point to that that doesn't help me but if I put it on the stage yeah in an artful way 
it does something with it. It like sends it out of me and out into the world and then together with whoever's in the room we do something with it that for me feels more constructive. Um, I think it's very encouraging for many people going through these long-term chronic illnesses that something so beautiful in a way can come out of something and like you say you haven't you're not healed <laughs> you're, you're working towards that but yeah the, the beauty in the struggle I suppose in some ways yeah can be expressed that's that's really well, well put mm. and and um and again an un- unexpected byproduct benefit of this show is that I mean the, I think about the term healing a lot and I mm. feel like it's just a, an ongoing long process for me and the show has been a crucial part of that. In fact, I would say it was the turnaround point when I started working on this show. It just started giving me a different perspective and making me realise I can actually do something with all of this crap I've gone through, yeah, that can be put out into the world, yeah, in a way that not only empowers me, but as you say, and I didn't set out to do this, Mm. but it is what has happened because so many people have told me it, it has ended up reflecting the experience of so many people with disabilities, chronic illnesses, and even, frankly, just other human experiences because I've had people come up to me who don't have chronic illness or disability but who have just said, I feel like I, I do know your story because I'm still a human with invisible struggles going on inside mm. me because everyone has invisible stuff going on. So there was a certain point, yeah, where I realised this show is actually very universal it's deeply personal and could only be done by me because it's a it's very much my story but overwhelmingly the response has said to me this is representative of a broader the broader I guess experience of the human condition is what a lot lot of people have said which sounds like a really big claim and I don't take that lightly but no no I agree like a lot of people have said it to me and I really I try to really listen to what people are saying because the audience is always the mirror, you know? Mm. We've all been to the depths of some degree. Exactly. And come back. How do we recreate from that? Mm. Exactly. And as a lot of people in the disability community often joke about, everyone's going to be disabled someday. <laughs> you know, um, in one way or another. And so it's like, well, yeah, let's, let's pay attention and listen to these experiences because... In one way or another, we are tied in with that experience, yeah. You mentioned that Senate inquiry. I just thought it was worth touching on that a bit. And that frustration, perhaps, like you say, that not recognised in the medical community? That's right. So I'm an ambassador for the Lyme Disease Association of Australia. And as part of that work, I have looked at a lot of stats and read a lot of documents and have myself learnt a lot about what's been going on in from a political point of view sort of a medical medico political point of view um vis-a-vis Lyme and there was a senate inquiry into the existence of Lyme disease in Australia um back a few years ago now and for me even the title that is problematic it sort of says into the existence as if sort of almost well it was questioning and whether it exists or not it's, yes, it's another whole element to Lyme that a lot of people perhaps don't know about. And I often say to people, there's the experience of having Lyme itself, all of the symptoms and all of that that you have to navigate. But somewhat even more difficult to deal with is the controversy surrounding it. Very early on when I did get diagnosed, 
I I did actually receive a positive test result from a NATO-approved Australian lab um, of Lyme, yet when I went to my back then regular GP, she refused to look at the test results. I am not making this up. It is 100% true. I was as shocked by it as perhaps someone listening to this may be. My mum was sitting with me in the room at the time and we both just left very confused and that was the first time I realised something is going on here. I am suddenly now part of an underground illness world that I never saw coming and so yeah there is a lot of controversy around Lyme and it's extremely hard to get A, a diagnosis and B, treatment. A lot of Lyme patients in Australia have to crowdfund and go overseas to clinics to be adequately treated. And yes, since the Senate inquiry, I guess, brought forth a lot of voices from the Lyme community, in particular a lot of Lyme-treating doctors, of which there aren't a lot in Australia. There are certainly hardly any now. There's only maybe four left because so many have been banned from practising. But at that time... A lot of those doctors did sort of bravely come forward and and share what they'd been discovering and learning from their years of working with patients who had a tick bite and then sort of came to them and said, I've had this bite and my life, my body functioning and my life have not been the same since. I don't care what you call it, whether it's Lyme or not, something has happened. And I think that's the main frustration with a lot in the Lyme community is like, Why is it coming down to semantics? Because some of the arguments around the naming of the illness here in Australia has to do with the fact that Lyme is in fact a town in Connecticut, in America, which is where the first outbreak of Lyme disease, the first known outbreak of Lyme disease occurred. And so there's sort of this argument that like, oh, well, there are lots of different strains of the Borrelia bacteria. And if it's not the one specific strain that is known to come from Lyme in America, then you can't call it Lyme. That's sort of one of the arguments, which frankly is very weak because in Europe they call it Lyme. I lived in the UK for a long time. They call it Lyme even though they have different strains. So there's sort of this absurd argument there. And then in Australia the government sort of also says it doesn't exist here, we've never found it. Uh, in ticks, which I won't go into that because it is another whole <laughs> it's another whole like dust cupboard full of scientific do- documents but yeah, um, yeah there, ha- there have been yeah, particular strains found uh, in ticks in Australia but yeah, for various reasons certain uh, science evidence has been brushed aside in favour of focusing on the science that is saying it doesn't exist here. But either way, again, all of that is actually irrelevant because you just have a community of people saying, hey, I know I got a tick bite and I haven't been well since. It looks like Lyme, it walks like Lyme, it talks like Lyme. We don't have to call it Lyme, but there's something going on. Please just help me. They don't actually give a damn about what it's called. And so I think that's where the frustration is. But, yeah, there has been this shocking unfolding sort of since the inquiry and a bit before where Lyme treating doctors have come under extraordinary scrutiny from the medical board and and indeed in the worst case scenarios lost their right, their licence to practice and that is actually the case with my own Lyme doctor. So July last year I lost my Lyme treating doctor, the one who diagnosed me and the one who was a very key player in my illness management 
and it came out of nowhere. You know, the last time I had an appointment with him, I did not know that three days later he was going to be banned from practicing, never to return. That was shocking, you know. That still shocks me, even though I'd heard, I'd heard it was going down in the Lyme community. And I've had doctors, I've even had infectious disease specialists who have said to me, "Yeah, you have Lyme, but I can't help you," which is which is a line in my show. Um, again, in that end finale section where I, I speak in very verbatim terms. Yeah, I've had numerous doctors say. They won't use the term Lyme, perhaps, but they'll say, yeah, you, you have a tick-borne disease, but I can't help you. That's a very common thing, too. There seems to be big fear, which is uh, very, very frightening for a lot of people, I think. I've sort of moved into a phase of my illness that I think a lot, a lot of people with illnesses that go on for years and years get to, which is what I call the... I, I'm very DIY with my management now. I, I do absolutely have a doctor but that I touch base with now and then, but... I've got to the point where I have to just try and self-manage as best as I can. Mm-hmm. A, because it's just financially cost everything I've had, you know, in medical bills thus far. And B, because, yeah, there's just few doctors left who can really help. So it is, it is a very dark side to the medical experience that I would never have even believed in my wildest dreams could possibly exist in Australia before I myself was experiencing it firsthand. And it's a very common story in the Lyme community. It's, it's very common. Well, this show is such a triumph for you, Andy, on so many levels. I imagine there must have been times you even wondered if you would perform again, really. Uh, that constantly is, is, is a mm. thought that visits me, yeah. Even in the first little development season showing I did of it in 2019, a week before that opened, I remember laying on the floor and saying to my um, director who I was working with at that time on the development I think I'm going to have to cancel the season, it was just a little three night season you know of showing a work in progress and I said I think I'm not well enough but it did end up, that season did end up going up and thank God because it gave me the motivation to keep going with this show and really flesh it out but yes I I did stop performing for about three years which was pretty devastating on my soul, <laughs> to be well, honest. as a performer, I mean, yeah. everything. It's my calling, and um, that really highlighted for me how important creating and performing was to me. And I think that's why now, when I am able to perform, I don't muck around. I'm like, I'm here to tell a <laughs> good story, and I'm going to give it all I've got. And I'm, I'm, every breath counts, every word counts in a way it hasn't before, which is actually the gift of it all, which is something I do always look for. Yeah, I, I look for the happy and the wrong, as the show itself is all about, because otherwise, what is the point? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for telling us just this little slice of your story. But the, uh, what I wanted to get through is that your show will hopefully be touring as well. So hopefully we're giving people a little taste to just see a bit. This was, I just found it so uplifting, harrowing and, and uplifting all at the same time. Which I, which I love because yeah. I, I believe those two things can exist at the same time. And yes, um, I believe this show will have a long touring life. It's absolutely my plan. So... Yeah, I look forward to travelling around with it. And looking after yourself in the meantime to enable you to keep going with it. Yeah, like exactly. Like with your management and routine, all the best with it, and I hope it's a huge success and takes you wherever you want to go. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Thank you.
That was Andy Snelling speaking to me at Henley Beach in Adelaide for this episode of Streets of Your Town. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. If you'd like to meet more everyday, incredible Australians, subscribe and listen to the back catalogue of Streets of Your Town, including Series 2, The Journo Project, on Apple Music, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please review and rate Streets of Your Town on your podcast provider, share the show with your mates or join my wandering Journo tribe of supporters at the Streets of Your Town website. Site, soyt.substack.com. Thank you.